Hello and welcome to this, the 200th episode of Backlisted, the podcast which continues to give new life to old books. Something a little different today, we're actually for the first time ever being filmed live. Um, it's not live for you, but it will be live when you see it. Um, anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Shall yeah, I we'll do get, that again? We'll, no, we'll get the hang yeah, of that. That's, that's fine. Okay. Today, you find us in the basement of a late Victorian house in the West London suburb of Ealing, sometime in the late 1950s. It's a very neat room with a long woodworking bench, a desk, and a drawing board, and a strong smell of sawdust. An extractor fan purrs gently above the bench, and a short, slightly overweight man sits at the desk examining a copper box. Beside him stands a tall man in a naval overcoat, looking in admiration at the box and its contents. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, where people crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And for this special show, our 200th, we have invited a special guest. It's the 200-year-old Richard Osman. <laughs> Welcome, Richard. <laughs> Hello, gentlemen. How lovely to be here. Um, it's so nice to see you. Richard is a producer, comedian, television presenter and a best-selling author. And when we say best-selling <laughs> author, mean John, we best mean best-selling best author. <laughs> uh, we don't mean better than some other folks or selling author. We mean best-selling author. Top of the tree. As a producer at Endemol, he worked on classic shows such as Deal or No Deal and 8 Out of 10 Cats. But it was his own creation, Pointless, that saw him step out of a behind-the-scenes role to become a household name. As co-presenter with his friend Alexander Armstrong, he appeared in 1,300 episodes. I think it's 2,000. No! I think it's 2,000. I don't know where that's from, but it's... Oh, I wish uh, it had only been 1,300. The time <laughs> I would have had back. incredible. It's a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, 30 series, something like that. Yeah, so it was a, yeah, it was yeah. a lot. Let's just pretend this isn't the 200th one, because suddenly yeah. it seems puny. <laughs> it's pathetic. Only, only 1,800 to go, Jen. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he left that role in early 2022 so he could spend more time on his writing, a theme we will return to in the main body of the show. In Richard's case, this proved a smart move. Beginning with the Thursday Murder Club in 2020, Richard's series of crime novels has torn up the record books. His debut novel was the fastest-selling debut crime novel of all time and the first debut crime novel to be a UK Christmas number one. All four books have been bestsellers both here and in the US, and Richard's books have now spent... An ast- I'm not laughing at you. I'm, I laughing, know, I'm laughing in delight with you. Honestly, Richard. if I hadn't heard of me, I would hate me. <laughs> I am sorry. They've spent an astonishing 57 weeks in the UK number one spot and sold over 10 million copies globally. Wow. His latest novel, The Last Devil to Die, published in September by Viking in the UK and Pamela Dorman Books in the US, sold 146,919 in the UK. You must have been disappointed to not get the 20. <laughs> would, have, would have loved to get 147,000. That yeah. was the... Oh, making it the fastest-selling British hardback novel of, of all, all time. <laughs> Richard greeted the news saying he needed to sit down. And uh, so, there you go. Take it easy. Take it easy. Fine, the first time I've sat down since. And given uh, it's our 200th episode, before we plunge into the main show, we'd love to take this opportunity to ask you a few questions about your own relationship with books Mm -hmm. and reading. Given that, you, you will have changed the course of popular literary entertainment in this country, in the States, and jacket design. I can't help noticing 
I keep seeing books that look rather like yours on the bookshelves. <laughs> yes, yes. How does that feel? Well, it's, it's a guy called Richard Bravery who, um, who who did this cover. And funnily enough, we're, we're doing the cover. I've got a new series coming out next year, and we're we're coming up with cover designs for that. And that's a lot of fun because essentially Richard is doing the next thing that people can copy. That's what we're amazing. <laughs> so, so that's a completely new, not the Thursday Murder no, yeah, Club. Yeah, not, not the Thursday Murder Club. They they will be coming back, but yeah, a, a whole new series with with a whole new look. Wow. Which, which I think will be equally iconic because we're, we're ripping off something else equally iconic. <laughs> As in, in time-honoured fashion. Yeah. Hall of Mirrors. Yeah. Right, Hall of Mirrors. Publishing. Ah. Derivative with a twist, uh, TM, Don Draper. Um, <laughs> so, Richard, mm -hmm. um, did you... I feel you must have grown up in a bookish house. No, not at all, funnily enough. And, you know, uh, my, my brother is a great deal more bookish than me. The, the books we had, my mum had some Agatha Christie. Mm. There was like Judith Krantz and Harold Robbins, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, but no, not really, we didn't. And I, I had very, very bad eyesight, so it took me a long time to start reading. When I was a kid, I would read a lot, read Famous Five and all that, because the, the yeah. font is quite big in kids' books. <laughs> yeah. And as soon as you get onto actual books... It's like, oh, I can't read yeah, yeah. this. Oh, That's I'll interesting. Watch TV instead. And there and wasn't really an option, wasn't a sort of audio book option in those exactly, days. Exactly. Really. No. Yeah, you you absolutely couldn't listen to it. And you know, as I got older, I thought I just, oh no, this is just you're just going to take a long time to read yeah. books. But it took me a long time to get because it, I couldn't read at the speed other people were reading, and so yeah. I couldn't quite work out how they were enjoying this experience as much as I was because it was it was quite hard work That's for me. That's fascinating. Yeah, Richard, your elder brother Matt. Yes. Also a novelist, yes. plays bass in a group called Suede. He sure does. Now, you and Suede all came from, as you say, like a dormy town in yes. Sussex, right? Yeah. Near Haywards Heath. Uh, in Haywards Heath. In Haywards Heath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Suburban, yeah. you say. Suburban. Yeah. We're always, we're <laughs> always like that. You could not be more suburban. It's like a suburb of a suburb. <laughs> but the things, do you know, I genuinely, I thought of something I can remember Brett Anderson, the singer of Suede, saying yeah. in an interview back in the 90s, where he said, um, you know, we're from the suburbs, but the thing is, all the good stuff comes from the suburbs. You know, mm. punk, uh, glam, <laughs> yep. acid house, techno. What's the city ever given us? Acid jazz. <laughs> I, he said. Right. He's right, though, isn't he? Yeah. And that we, Brett was from Linfield, which is a suburb of Haywards Heath. So <laughs> the chip on his shoulder <laughs> yeah, is yeah, immense. It's, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but it's true because, you know, I, I think an awful lot of people will do anything they can to get out. Get out. And, and Matt did and Brett did that's not me. I, I I like being in the suburbs. That's where I feel safe. That's where I feel comfortable. That's my that's my Britain. Uh, so it's L here, London that feels alien to me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen, I'm just about. Take me back to it. Croydon, everyone. Take me yeah, back yeah. to Croydon. Take me back to dear old Croydon. Say, that's, yeah. I think we're five minutes in. That's, yeah, that's yeah, very good. So, did Matt pass books on to you, or or was his status as your older brother a guarantee that you wouldn't? You'd go down different paths. Yeah, and also I think he realised that that wasn't what I was interested in. And he was, that music was his thing, so he'd pass music on to me. So I you know, found Bowie through him and Jesus and Mary Chain and the Smiths and all all of those bands and Suede would sort of rehearse upstairs. So any any coolness I have in me, and I have a, I have about... 3.7% coolness, right? And I and I really, I, I go to that well again and again and again, but it's uh, it's it's the same well. That all comes from Matt. But yeah, I don't really remember him reading, but he must have done, because he's yeah. so insanely well-read. And, you know, that can't right. just come from 20 onwards, but, but perhaps it did. Yeah, we weren't we weren't a, a bookish household. That's very, that's very, very interesting. Um, 
before I ask you a, tra a, a once traditional question <laughs> that we've now ditched on here. Um, moved, Andy, not ditched. We've moved, moved, we've moved. that's moved. true, that's true. Listen, that's all true. formats have to adapt. You have to evolve. That's <laughs> yes. the thing. It's like a shark moving <laughs> forward. Listen, exactly. pay heed to what yeah. Richard said. I'll see pointless, we changed the format so many times. It, <laughs> it never quite worked. <laughs> um, I, I want to know, you're very generous in your um, the way you yeah. talk about books and other writers and um and in fact we the thing that inspired us to ask you to come and join us on here for show 200 was you managed to put um a month in the country by jl carr which was the subject of the very first yeah. episode of backlisted eight years ago you managed to put it back into the bestseller Backlist. charts yeah one um, of my honestly one of my proudest achievements well, but, <laughs> yeah it but, is it's great i love it but what tell us about that do you do you think i mean all right you read it you love it yeah. you think okay i could talk about this do you pause and think mm, i want to keep this for me god no it's it, it's you know reading is 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 a joy and the one thing about being an author as well the one thing that keeps me sane as an author is understanding i'm part of an industry you know, if, yeah. if if I was just thinking I want to live or die on the quality of my work and, and being remembered and, you know, the quality of my imagery, I think that's too hard. What I like is to finish the book and then suddenly you're part of a big gang, which is publishers, which is editors, which is bookshops, which is booksellers. Mm. Uh, and that's an industry that's sort of gone from strength to strength in the last five years, bookselling. Uh, and, you know, that to me is the ecosystem that I'm a part of. And that's what keeps me sane is thinking, no, I'm that's just really one cog in that Absolutely. wheel and every time i sell a book a bookseller has sold a book as well so everyone everyone's getting there so it's up. like a, a community right exactly that readers and, and writers and listen there's there isn't a high street in britain that isn't better without a bookshop in it and there isn't yeah. a home in britain which yeah. isn't better without an, another book in it and so anytime i come across a book i've got i'm i have mainstream tastes and i always have done okay <laughs> that's where my tv stuff comes from if i read a book like a month in the country that i think everybody will love then I'm going to shout from the yeah. rooftops from because it's a brilliant book, but that everyone will also love, and that's such a rare kind of yeah, you know that absolutely. Venn diagram, and that you know uh, uh, there's that On Golden Hill by Francis Bufford. Yeah, great. I read it's a brilliant book, but that everyone will love. Yeah. Life after life, Kate Atkinson. Yeah, brilliant book, but mm -hmm. everyone will love. Mm -hmm. So anytime I come across one of those. I'm like I, I try and sing it from the rooftops because you make the world a better place if you bring great books into I, people's I, lives. I seem to remember, John, that one of the reasons that we wanted to do a month in the country early on, if and and in fact for the first episode was because we neither of us ever met anyone who didn't like yes. that book if they'd heard of it. Yeah, that was the trick. It, it's mad. It is mad, isn't it? Because you, yeah. you, I've given two copies away this week to, to people Have in the you? village because yeah. we were having a discussion and people say, "Oh, I've sort of fallen out of reading," and then you suddenly think, "I, I know yeah. the the entry level drug that will get you back yeah. onto reading." If you again. want a great, really short book, yeah, then uh, and that's then the thing. I mean, you. the shortness does help because people yeah. don't feel intimidated by it. So, what have you been reading this week? That's what we used to yeah. ask one another. Oh, now yeah. we're asking you. What have you? What have you been reading this okay, week? Okay, well, listen, I'm going to say something probably neither of you. Ever said I am listening to I think it's the third book in a series and I genuinely think this series is the funniest series of books ever written in the English language and I will absolutely you heard it die here. on that you heard hill. it here first folks uh, and it's and it... the it's the new Adam Partridge book oh, ah, big, big yes we love them we've talked about yeah, them yeah. on so, this show written by several times Neil and Rob Gibbons yes and all three books from start to finish 
are the comedy comes from such crazy angles. It's like total football. It's like the Dutch in the 1970s. I agree. Jokes coming from places you don't expect jokes from. The audiobooks, I think, are, are amazing because you've got Coogan reading them as well. But the sheer quality and volume of jokes, of character stuff, of story, of bathos is... I mean, it, I, it, I find it genuinely mind-blowing. And if we took comedy seriously in this country, critically seriously... Yeah. Then these these would be we'd be singing from the rooftops about. I'm it. sure we, we talked we, about the we Partridge did. books yeah. when Sarah Perry was on. I, One of the I think we Sarah did. Perry was she's, on. she's a massive fan. Yeah, and we yeah. said we thought that they were the the perfect Partridge vehicle that he'd found. Oh, he found the absolute kind of. <laughs> The, the sort of the, listening to him delivering them in that, yeah. well, but also the Gibbonses are really good at. I have to, I take my hat off to them. Yeah, you know, we we all like observing tr publishing trends and, and <laughs> making jokes about them. Yeah, but they are so good oh, at every, spotting yeah. a walking memoir. Yeah, or whatever the new one is, a building a lighthouse. Yeah, building a lighthouse. Uh, yeah, the, it, I think Richard, um, what you're saying about. Coogan's reading of them. What's so wonderful is they're very funny books to read on the yes. page. Yeah. Oh. But the audiobooks, are, this is a mark of Steve Coogan's incredible talent. He doesn't just read them as Alan Partridge. He reads them and leaves the listener with the impression that Alan is terribly pleased to be doing something as prestigious as reading yeah. his own book. Well, right? he's, he's, he's reading them as Alan Partridge reading Alan Partridge. Yes, that's, that's, right. that's, that's, that's exactly, right. That's the absolute exactly. genius I mean, literally, thing. at the very start of the first book, the page says acknowledgements, and it just says, at this time there is nobody I wish to acknowledge. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. Oh, uh, that's so, so nice. But it's so interesting, good. isn't it, that that would... How, how is that not sung from the rooftops as a great... Just a great, well, great work? It, yeah. it is by us yeah. and many right-thinking people. I, I, I also say, you know, funnily enough, well, this is germane to what we've got coming up in a future episode, but... I I always am grateful when comedians and comic writers make those books mm. so much better than they need, need to, to be. be. Yeah. Yeah, it's, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, 100%. This, is, this is the thing. It's this idea that you said mainstream taste yeah. or you know what used to be called middle-brow taste, as though this is kind of an undifferentiated lump of yeah. all the same quality. It's not. To write great mainstream comedy to write great mainstream anything takes as much skill as much i think as as, as much as much practice uh, and as much time as it does to write you know li literature or i mean of I course think. it does well, listen we're going to get onto it in the in the, the book we're talking about today there's there's there's, there's similar yeah. issues there but yeah i, th I think critically it's it's there, yeah. there, there's a certain highbrow critic who's not capable of knowing why one mainstream novel sells and another doesn't, yes. or one it's, mainstream novel works and another doesn't. They don't have it's not in their wheelhouse because they're using different criteria. Yeah. And so, it's, reading reviews of mainstream novels is very hard because it's not, if, if especially if they're funny, you know, they literally they, they they lose all ability to to, to understand what they're reading. It does not compute. Yeah. yeah, it really, but it really doesn't. It's, it's, I mean, you'll see this Richard, in the it's, reviews. It's a huge, it's a huge, yeah. it's a huge motivation for why we wanted to do this podcast. Is yeah. not because we particularly feel that we need to hold the you know mainstream uh, the, the, the 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 flag for mainstream literature, but because it, it, it's so rare to get a, 
any space where you can talk about the what used to be called high and low culture, or yeah. whatever you want to call it, the, the spread of stuff, and being, to be able to discriminate, yeah, you know, between those things, and to be able to have proper conversations um, about their their value and their the skill of the of the people who've written and put together is is ridiculously rare. Yeah, and it's you know. It's always interesting to see what endures, yes. you know, and who endures, and what yeah. writing, you know. Just go, okay, yeah, that that was, you know, as you say, things that when they're reviewed at the time, and you read them now, and you just go, oh no, this is the one that's, yeah. you know, look at Barbara Pym or something like that, and yeah. you know, just think of the big male novelists who are writing at the same time who just sort of yeah, couldn't disappeared well, into the ether. It's yeah, funny it's you a... should mention Barbara Pym because I know how much you like Barbara. Mm. I want to run my theory by you, Richard. Uh, and if you, <laughs> if you disagree with it, I'm going to ignore that and I'm going to publish okay. and be damned. OK. OK. So your, your novels, The Thursday Murder Club, The Man Who Died Twice, The Bullet That Missed, The Last Devil to Die. Yeah. I read an interview where you said they were partly inspired by the A-team. Yes. I, I, I think I've reverse engineered that theory. But yeah, for sure. What do you mean? Uh, I think that having seen having seen their success, I was trying to think, well, how on earth did that happen? And then I thought about how much I loved the A team when I was growing up. It's in your brain, you know. Yeah, it's a gang where everybody, whatever problem comes along, one of them has the solution. Team of all talents. A team of all talents, exactly. Okay, so and that I I I'm not going to disagree with your reverse engineered theory, but I'm saying there's another book that no one on earth would have thought of crossing with the A-team to create the best-selling books of the 21st century. And that novel is Barbara Pym's Quartet in Autumn. (laughs) Yes, lovely. Listen, I take that. Quartet in Autumn meets the A-team. Yeah. Yes! I'll take that. It's a winner. But it's, um, yeah, again, it's (laughs) reverse-engineered. That's for for sure. All criticism is reverse-engineered. But but let's just pause and say uh, Quartet in Autumn by Barbara Pym, first of all, because it's about a quartet of elderly people. As yeah. your novels are, but I mean, so, yeah. but but, and it is kind of funny in a yeah. very, very, very and dark, brilliant, way. brilliant waspish female and, characters, and, yeah, and like wonderful. And... But um, as you say about the type of books we're talking about in today's episode, you know, Barbara Pym actually went through a phase in her career where she couldn't get published yeah, yeah. because. People assumed that she was just a little old lady writing about yeah. vicars. And you read it now and you just think, how how on earth did that happen? Yeah. But then, you know, you look at Mick Heron, who yeah. was sort of out of sorts, mm, and you know, absolutely. and then John Murray came in and, and republished him. How do, how does Mick Heron not sell? I mean You know, when you read someone who can like Barbara I, or Mick Heron who can write so beautifully. I remember when they were seriously talking about dropping Ian Rankin. Because he just, you know, he just wasn't getting the figures. And Sir, then he wrote Surian Rankin. Surian Rankin. <laughs> and then they wrote. <laughs> Will Ian yeah. be pleased to hear you say that? <laughs> no, no, no. He knows. <laughs> I'm not sure. He knows this. And then he wrote a. You know, I think it was Black and Blue. It was, it was, yeah. There was one that was. It was slightly bigger. He put 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 more into it or something. I don't know. Nobody really knows what. Boom! Suddenly. Yeah. And then you have got six books that he's already. You know, the rest, as they say, is his literary history. history. Well, listen. Um, Richard, we have a running joke on this show about publishers' use of the phrase master storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yet, and yet, it seems fair to say on this episode 200, you, a master storyteller, <laughs> have brought to the table perhaps the master storyteller of the 20th century, right? I mean, it's the That's perfect, yeah. it's the perfect landing. 
John. We, we, we love that. Let's let's put the listeners out of their misery and, and, and say what we're going to be talking about today, the main event. The book Richard has chosen is by, as Andy said, another best-selling British author. It is Trustee from the Tool Room by Neville Shute, first published in 1960 by Heinemann, the last of Shute's best-selling sequence of 23 novels, and it was published posthumously. It tells the story of Keith Stewart, a working-class man with Scottish roots who lives modestly with his wife in the West London suburb of Ealing, suburbs there, Ealing, and who makes <laughs> and who makes his it makes ends meet by writing a how-to column in a popular magazine called Miniature Mechanic. After his sister and her husband are killed while sailing in the Pacific en route to a new life in Vancouver, Keith and his wife Katie adopt Janice, his nine-year-old niece. Keith is made trustee in the will and discovers that all his sister and brother-in-law's savings had been converted into diamonds to avoid the strict British rules over exporting currency. More of that later, <laughs> yeah, I suspect. This, <laughs> I, I, know, just, I know this doesn't sound... No, yeah. as, as you're don't, don't switch don't, off. Don't, don't switch off. off. This sounds like the weirdest <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really does. It, it, yeah. it, 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 it both is and it isn't, yes. yes. Despite never having left the country before, Keith decides it is his duty to visit the site of the wreck on the Natal in the middle of the Pacific and try to recover the diamonds. To do this with next to no money, he must discover <laughs> new depths of courage and ingenuity and most of the novel is an account of his extraordinary adventure. He is helped on his way by many different people. The crew of a commercial aircraft, a Jewish-American tycoon who's made his fortune in lumber, and most memorably by Jack Donnelly, a big-hearted, half-Polynesian sailor who crosses the vast distances of the Pacific in a boat he's built himself with little in the way of traditional navigational aids. Now, this book may not be one of Neville Shute's best-known novels. Um, in fact, we were saying before we came on air, and I, I'm prepared to confess this, mm. When Richard suggested it, I had never heard of it. And I now, me, having me spent neither. a week think, finding out more about it, I'm so ashamed yeah. of, of not knowing because this was it's a cracker, this is right? one of his best oh, loved yeah. and was a huge bestseller. Yeah. Um, it was one of the top bestsellers of 1960. It was a book, month, book of the Month club selection in the USA, um, albeit with a slightly <laughs> lukewarm endorsement by, um, you've written here, the Richard Osman of his day. <laughs> we just said he's Neville Shute. He can't be Neville Shute and... and Clifton Fadiman, no. Clifton Fadiman. Um, imagine being a, radio, a big radio personality and also a critic and also a novel. Who does that now? Wow. Oh, OK, well, listen, anyway, this is what Clifton Fadiman, the... the <laughs> Damning with fake praise, I think. Fading Fadiman, who wrote that Trusty from the Tool Room was, quote, an exciting story, honestly conceived, even if devoid of much literary grace. <laughs> oh. I'd take that. Yeah. I'd, I'd have, <laughs> I'd, I'd have yeah. that on the front of my next one. Beautiful. In any event, by 1972, the book's paperback jacket could boast that Shoot had sold over 14 million novels. Some to go, yeah. And yeah. his work has remained in print ever since with uh, Vintage reissuing all 23 of them as recently as 2009. So, Richard, mm. before we discuss all the things to do with this book, why Neville Shute was so successful in his day and is so little read now, we think, Yeah. Um, when did you first uh, come across uh, a book by Neville Shute or, or hear the name Neville Shute? I guess, again, you know, he, he was absolutely in the canon, so I suspect we had um, uh, a town like Alice... Yeah, at home. So I'd I'd seen the name, I knew the name, and then I read that in my twenties and on the beach, which I think are the two that most people the, have read. Yeah, they're the two I'd read. Yeah, yeah the and, two I'd know, read. And I really enjoyed a, a, a town like Alice. I didn't love on the beach, although it, it's got something. I, I, I having reread it, I preferred it uh, mm. than I used to because I think I was expecting something else. Uh, and actually, now 
I reread it. I thought, oh, I, I see what you're doing, Nev. Um, <laughs> and then I picked. It, honestly, if if you'd asked me two months ago, I would have I would have gone for Michael Frayn for this podcast. I would have gone for Towards the End of the Morning. But I read Trusty. It's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book. Mm -hmm. I read Trusty from the Tool Room, uh, and you know, it's funny as a writer because a, a bit of you does sometimes have to think, what, what sort of a writer am I? Yeah, you know what example from the past sort of most suits you know who who I think I am, and I read this book and I thought, well, that's the writer I'd like to be, you know. I mm. just thought it was extraordinary, and it was extraordinary for very very unusual reasons. There is not a single sort of show off bone in this guy's body. This whole book is just he's literally trying to entertain you. He's got a story to tell you, which I think he weaves very very beautifully. Um, he just, it's sort of like an introvert's adventure, you know, which, which, which is a beautiful thing. And there's no, I, I have a lot of theories about jeopardy, which we can get to later <laughs> and jeopardy in fiction and jeopardy in film. Uh, and in this book is this sort of jeopardy, but there also isn't jeopardy. You know, and yeah, there the are no the jeopardy isn't where you think it's going to no, be, no, is no, it? Exactly. In the opening couple of chapters, and there are no villains particularly. Mm. No. And the truth is, everyone everybody wants helps to, him. Everybody wants to help Keith all the way through, and that's such to, to weave that into an in, in, into an adventure story. I think so powerful. And we we were talking just now as a wonderful motif all the way through this book. So Keith, who is you know is very poorly paid guy who writes for a miniature modeler. That's his thing, but you know, can make anything, makes tiny little machines, uh, but is very, very, very unassuming and genuinely unassuming. So he goes on this incredible odyssey, you know, on kind of, you know, and it's a 50s odyssey when aeroplanes were, were, were a big deal and, you know, mm. big, these big lumber yachts. Everywhere he goes in this unassuming way, he'll introduce himself and every single engineer anywhere just goes, Sorry, you're the Keith Stewart <laughs> from, from from Miniature Modeler, yeah. and he goes, "Well, I suppose so." And that, that he's a he's a huge mm. celebrity amongst people who yeah. make stuff, mm. uh, and it, it's it's just such a joy because you're cheering him on all yeah. the way through, and just to see who's going to help him now. Yeah, because he he is this kind of little pooterish figure, isn't yeah. he? With a, with a, you know, he's described in the early on the book as having a dirty, a greasy mac and a little a, a floppy hat and yeah. he's slightly overweight and pasty skinned. Like thousands of like men, thousands walking, through of London, men yeah. walking through London in 1958 or whenever it, whenever, whenever it's set. It, uh, it's my, uh, we've said this often on this show, but it's my belief that all books are in fact books about books, right? <laughs> right. They're all, they're, they're yeah. Fundamentally, they're all yeah. books about books. And sure enough, when I started reading um, Trustee from the Tool Room, I thought, oh, Neville, you don't, you don't fool me. A little guy who lives in Ealing, yeah. like you did, yeah. uh, in, the, in your house, like yeah. you did, who's working on miniature models. And I thought, oh, God, the miniature modelling, that's a, that's a metaphor for the fictional process. It isn't. <laughs> no, he liked making miniature models, yeah, Neville. Exactly. There's no, yeah. there's no um, subtext there. It's, it's about the thing that he's interested in. And one of his theories was, if you write about something that interests you, um, which partly explains some of the strange subject areas he wandered into in the yeah. course of his career, <laughs> yes. which we'll come on to. But if it animates you, you will write better on the page and that will communicate itself to the reader. Yeah, he also says, which is true, he said, look, I only have one job and that, that, that's essentially to entertain, to yeah. tell a story. And he says, so what I try and do is if I have new information, 
I try and get that across as well. Yeah. And it's fascinating because what he thinks, he thinks he's giving us this engineering information because there's quite detailed yes. bits of engineering in this and about the size really of detailed. bores and stuff like that. <laughs> like but, fa- it's proper fan service. Yeah. If you're interested, in, you, you, I, don't you feel at this stage in his career, I'm going to give the people who are interested in engineering, in engineering quite a lot of engineering. But the lovely thing is, this is in the 50s. This is before the, just before the yeah. world changed forever. Yeah. So what you're actually reading is an extraordinary bit of history. And it feels, you know, you watch The Repair Shop and people love The Repair Shop because it's people who can make things and do things. And he's writing about this guy. And so he is, you realise, trying to give you modern technological information to his reader. But we're reading it 70 years later Mm. and we're reading this incredible portrait of a lost age because the writing is so beautiful. But I'll sit and read that stuff and and imagine, you know, his workshop, they talk about all the different um, machines he's got in. It's lovely. It's like It's like... You know when authors write about flowers? Yeah. They go, I was walking down the road in this hollyhocks, and they go, I don't care. Yeah. I genuinely don't care. <laughs> but there's a, there's a thing. I'll read a tiny bit here. And he, and he says, um, he called the front basement room his clean working room, and this was his machine shop. He had a six-inch Herbert lathe for heavy work, a three-and-a-half-inch Myford and a Bowley watchmaker's lathe. He had a senior milling machine and a Boxford shaper, a large and small drill press and a vast array of tools ready to hand. And you just think, great. I mean, that's like... I don't know what any of those things are, but I can, you know... I'm, I'm back there in the 50s. But we were saying earlier, weren't we, that the thing that I find so interesting about Neville Shute is, you know, an aeronautic engineer, yeah. tremendously interested in detail, um, covers a very peculiar range of topics in the course of his novels. He's something I absolutely love in when I find a writer like this. These books shouldn't work. Oh my god! I've studied the rules. Shouldn't. These, these shouldn't work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's an engineer. Books yeah. don't work, and yet. The storytelling is gripping. They command yeah, huge audiences, yeah. or rather, commanded huge audiences in their day. Why? What? What is? I think we'll come back to this. So let's ask it for the first time. Yes. What's at the heart of a Neville Shute novel? What is the thing? What is the? Yeah, it's kernel. It's it's a terrific question, uh, and 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 I think it's a genuine love for an underdog. And if you can mm. write with a genuine love for an underdog rather than, oh, I've created an underdog character who I think the audience are going uh, yeah. to like. You know, I, th- I think he has genuine respect for this character and we have genuine respect for the character. And, you know, that's that's the case in lots of his novels. The slightly kind of unseen person, the slightly kind of overlooked person changes the world in, 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 in a, one, one way or another. Yeah, yeah. An ordinary person does an extraordinary thing. Yes, the, yeah. which, is a, the... which is such a trope. But if you write it from your heart... You know, then that's great. If you're a literary novelist saying, "Oh, I'm, I'm going to do a thing now about a uh, an, an ordinary person doing something extraordinary," <laughs> you think, "Well, no, because your brain is not ordinary, your heart is not ordinary." Whereas Shute's brain, his writing brain, is very ordinary. His heart is clearly very ordinary, uh, and he's just a great kind of prose stylist as well, in 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 his own way. So, I, I think it's that he writes stories that no one else is writing, yeah. which I think is interesting. And he writes them in a way he, as you say, he doesn't respect any of the rules. That's why I talk about Jeopardy. He doesn't, he doesn't do the thing of saying, "Oh my God, what's going to happen next?" He just has a different rhythm. Jack and 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 trustee, that this book is it, it shouldn't work because yeah. he basically tells you what the yeah. plot of the you know you, there's no there's no yeah. literally no surprise as to what how the plot of the novel unfolds. Mm. What he makes you interested in is it's like an engineering problem, isn't it? Is mm. hmm. 
jewels yes. on the other side of the world. <laughs> I have no money. How, yeah. how am I going to get there? And the answer is through being yourself, through being kind of uh, quite brave and pushing your limits and asking people for help and then in f finding yourself in, in ridiculously, um, uh, you know, outlandish situations that you're ill-equipped for. I particularly, there's just a... I love that thing where his wife says, it's going to be quite hot. You must take your <laughs> cricket blazer <laughs> and flannels. Yeah. And, the, I mean, the, the the great joy of the book is he his observation is, is so precise in each yeah. of the locations, whether he's on an aeroplane or he's on a ship, all the kind of detail is amazing. And it's fascinating because he will, he will describe the technical detail and you realise that he's using the language he can understand, but you, you can fill in the gaps around him, which is he's in this extraordinary place. And so he's got stuff to focus on. You know, they go from the snows of, you know, uh, refueling the aircraft in Vancouver yeah. down to the, the, the boiling sunshine. And yeah. he's he, he's always the same. He's seeking out the engineer uh, both places. I, I, I just... There's a couple of things I'd like to throw in here. The first thing is, um, in the light of what we've just been saying, this is a this is what Shoot himself said about what he felt were the criteria for a good novel. Yeah. Oh, great. I think that the contents of a book are far more important than the style. An author should write as well as he is able to because one of his jobs is to make his book easy to read. Oh, lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no book will be successful, however good the writing, if the contents are trivial and not worth <laughs> reading. It's pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty yeah. stern stuff. Well, that's a manifesto. Mm. For this reason, it has always seemed to me to be important to go to great lengths to find new material, to search for new facts and for new ideas to present to the reader in the fiction form. An author should know something of the world outside the bedroom if his book is to be useful. Useful is the, useful. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. word at the end there, right? Interesting, by the way, it said bedroom rather than outside the front room. Was <laughs> it sounds like he's responding to a very specific question. <laughs> yes, that, uh, perhaps there. so. Perhaps so. I, uh, the thing, but the thing I would like to say in relation to that, which actually massively um, increased my respect for this particular novel, is that he writes this novel at the end of his life yeah. when, to all intents and purposes after his unhappiness at the circumstances of the filming of his novel On the Beach, he has a stroke and he writes this novel in the last year of his life. He is not quite bedridden, in fact, but yeah. not far off. He ha he has only written about 20% of it when he falls ill. So he has to do two things. Those descriptions, mm. he can't travel. Yeah. So he has to... He yes. has to ask people from these places in the world to send him as many um, postcards, photographs, descriptions as they can so he feels on top of it. And the second thing is he dictated most of it. Oh, really? Did you know that? No. no so he dictated it into a into a tape yeah, machine yeah. and then worked off wow. the, um, the typed-up proofs. Yeah. And that really, I mean, that's not a fun way to... No. To compose a novel. I mean, there's no fun way to compose a novel, but that, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's a particularly he, unfun one. Mm. Yeah, he's, I, I, there's a brilliant bit where he's in, in his slide rule, his autobiography, where he says it, when he gets a typewriter, that's what enables him to write fiction. He said, well, I think most people start <laughs> off writing poetry, and I started doing that and then realised I wasn't very good at that. He said, but my, I found writing, the physical act of writing, quite difficult. So 
But once I got a typewriter, he said that was it. Oh, I kind of could just. But also, it's a gadget, isn't it? A typewriter. Yeah. And he loves. He yeah. exactly. He loves a machine. So why don't we, um, Richard? I might ask you about your routine in a moment. But yeah. can we? Let's hear um, Neville Shute's daughter Heather describing her father's writing routine. He was a very, very methodical man. He would always get up no around 7.30, have breakfast at 8.15, and then about 9 o'clock he would disappear into his study and he would stay there until 1 o'clock, something like that. We lived on a farm in Australia, a couple of hundred acres, and he just loved to get along out onto the farm and he'd just go and see that everything was doing all right, that the cattle were fine. And so were the pigs. He used to love to go and watch the pigs. <laughs> he so used to, now, John, yeah, see, go. we've got Croydon in and we've got pigs. Yeah, I know. But don't you love that? He was, he, that, that writing was just one of the things that he did. He, he didn't make it his defining yeah. thing. Well, he was slightly ashamed he, of he, being a novelist. He, well, he? he said, if you, people ask me what I am, I'm an engineer. That's what I'm, that's what I trained to be. And he was be. a serious engineer. I mean, I mean, he was a real deal. But, but he also believed that, that he had to, the reason why he, he's got the name Neville Shute is he doesn't yeah. want his, his career as an engineer to be compromised by people finding out <laughs> he's a best-selling novelist. So his full name was Neville Shute Norway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you, um, Richard, do you have a routine? Um, yeah, I, I, well, I sort of do in that in that I'll, I'll write for like two hours at a time. That's about as far as my brain would allow. But in that, two, I'm not a procrastinator. The second I start, my fingers won't leave the keyboard and two hours later... Uh, you know, I'll be done, but I won't look at the internet. I won't, you know, yeah. have the phone. But I try and write. I have quite short chapters just because my attention span is quite short. So I try and write a chapter every day. That's what I try and do, just so I've got a beginning and a middle and an end to to, to what I'm doing. And, oh, sorry, it's such a basic question, but it's fascinating you say that. If you write at that rate, yeah. do you know exactly where you're going or no. do you try and leave some leeway in so you can allow some energy in? It's all leeway, yeah. So right. I have a rough idea of where I might be headed and I know what the next three scenes I'm going to write are. But yeah, halfway through one chapter, I might someone will walk in and I go, oh, okay, okay, my, mm. my my story has changed. Otherwise, I'd be so bored if if I knew where I was going. All yes, the time. what Lissa Evans describes as you mustn't over plan because otherwise you're just colouring in between the lines. Well, I think so, which I get for some people works, right? So it, and, yeah. and listen, it's really hard to write a book. So whatever whatever works for you, you know, you you must do. But yeah, for me, I have to, you know, the characters aren't real if they don't have a bit of agency. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to allow them agency, I can't have decided what's going to happen to them. Uh, you know, they, they have to have some hand in that. Well, in a twist uh, at this point, uh, walking into the room is a word from our sponsors. So let's listen to that. So we were just talking about um, routines and Neville's routine, pre-pig routine. Uh, so <laughs> he's... The background to this is we should talk about his extraordinary work on the airship, the R100. Yeah, amazing. But he's doing that. And then while all this was going on, I was writing my second published novel in the evenings, so disdained. Again, I seem to have taken considerable pains over it. It took me two years to write, and all of it was written through twice over, some of it three times. I used to find that the story became fixed in the first writing. I do not think I ever altered a scene or the essentials of a piece of dialogue in a subsequent writing. 
A rewriting increased the length by about 10%. Love the precision. Awkward phrases and sentences were eliminated and the general style of the writing was improved. <laughs> Since the first writing probably took a year, one came to the chapter fresh in the rewriting, a year older, with a year past in which one had forgotten much of the detail. This undoubtedly helped in putting the thing into a better style. This great amount of rewriting does not seem to me necessary now. This is writing in 1954. With increasing experience, I find that I can say pretty well what I want to say the first time. Perhaps 30% of my later books have been rewritten. I rewrite the first chapter always as a matter of principle, since it is seldom in tune with the rest of the book. Good, good, good. Yeah. I do not seem to get into my stride till the first chapter is over. Love it. Do you know what? That's as a writer great. myself, I love Neville Shoe. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Because yeah. writing books, as you say, is really hard yeah. and is often the agony is much more to the, the fore than, it's, than Neville suggests it might be. Also, that thing, you know, his daughter's saying he liked to go and look at the pigs and the cattle and he had lots of projects on the go and then he was making his little machines and he was, you know, running businesses. It's it's a very odd autobiography slide rule because yeah. it, it only goes up to kind of, you know, it's really before he's famous as a writer. But the the um, the, the precision with which he he kind of writes about the, the jobs that he's done and, and also the big the big crisis, I think, in his life other than his brother dying in the in the trenches, which I think was was a was a huge problem. He was very close to his brother. A bit like you, Richard, he his brother was the literary one. Yes. <laughs> you know, oh Fred would have written some yeah. oh my Fred God, would have some really great. Well, that would have been much better. Yeah. Uh, well actually Richard, you said when you chose this, you said that your brother Matt You'd said to him, I've just read this great book, Trustee from the Tool Room. It's about this. Blah, blah, blah. And he said to you, in my, let's, <laughs> let's give recognition to yeah. the sort of thing only an elder brother can do. He said to you, yeah, I can see why you'd like that. <laughs> yes, exactly. now, and I, when oh, I read the book, I was thinking, what did Matt mean? What, what is the element that, that, that he sees? I think he sees uh, a book about a small town suburban hero and about the... The, the glory of ordinariness and the glory mm. of sort of middle Britishness, uh, and you know a book that doesn't you know uh, particularly spend a lot of time thinking about the nature of evil, but thinks about <laughs> the nature of goodness and thinks yes, about. Yes, that's very true. I think that, I, yes, I've, yeah, I've, I've got a theory which I can't prove, um, but that <laughs> the that you know he's writing this book at the end of his life. And it's it is a bit different, as you say. Yeah. There's no villains. There's no there's no real plot other than is he going to get the diamonds or isn't he? And actually, the the way he gets the diamonds is quite ingenious in the end. But as I say, the, 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 after his brother, the second massive thing in his life is the working on the R one hundred airship. Yeah, and the uh, at the same time as the government are building another airship, the R one hundred one, and the R one hundred one are famously on its maiden kind of flight with the Minister of Air on board and 48 other people are killed. And this was obviously deeply traumatic to, to, to shoot because of the loss of life, but also because he felt some, somehow this idea of state-run enterprise versus private entrepreneurship, that's kind of completely then fixes his view about, about life. And my theory about this book is that it's a bit like the R100, it's a, a group of people all helping one another yeah. with m minimal resources to achieve something that when it all comes together, it comes together well, I think, kind yeah, of beautifully. I think, yeah, it's fascinating since it's lost book because what you get in this is Keith, a character who doesn't ask for much and doesn't get much, right. but is very exacting 
in what he does, is very precise in what he does, does things the right way if you're an engineer, and finds himself in a position where all of those things are suddenly recognised, understood, and all of those things pay off, uh, and all of those things suddenly do bring him uh, financial reward and all sorts of things. So I think it's saying if you live your life the right way, if you live your life by the right measurements and you're exacting and precise, then it wouldn't it be lovely if that paid off? And it's, yeah. it's sort of a fantasy. Sort of fairy tale. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. here's the... Um, I've got the first edition of this uh, trustee from the two room here, and I will read you the jacket copy. Before I do that, do you write your own blurbs, Richard, or do you, does the publisher write them <laughs> no, for you? No, the publishers write them, and then I... Rewrite I, them. I, yes, I go into them and say, I wonder if, I wonder if we might not lead with that. I wonder, <laughs> if, I wonder if this might be slightly, slightly better for us. OK, so let's assume that perhaps... Well, we don't know, do we? We don't know if, um, he, if Neville Shute will have he, signed he had this up or not. a terrible problem with titles. He, he, oh, he, tell he, me about it. He this was, is a terrible he, title. But he, he was always being <laughs> told... Trusty from the tour of it's a terrible yeah. He was yeah. always being told that his titles were shit. Was yeah. he? Like, was he? I mean, and sometimes they won and sometimes he won. But, but they, I think but the book still sold, didn't they? they I still think sold on the beach, million copies. Is it on the beach for something called the Legacy in yeah. America? Or yeah. Yeah. okay. So this is the the blurb Trust. from Trustee from the Two Room. Two terrible, two terrible nouns. Trustee and Two Room. <laughs> Keith Stewart's life resembled that of thousands of other Englishmen. He lived in Ealing. He was happily married. He worked hard for a small salary, he had a mortgage to pay off, and he was a contented man. In his house, he had fixed up a model engineering workshop, and through his contributions to the miniature mechanic, he was known, as his Daily Post proved, to enthusiasts all over the world. <laughs> it doesn't matter what, wow. what, what way you approach this book. Is this the blur? <laughs> yes, oh this is the blur. Who's picking this up? Right, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Bring it on, come on. One day, the tram lines of Keith Stewart's life were torn up. He woke up oh. to find that he had become the trustee of his 10-year-old niece and that he was committed to a wild quest for a cash which his own ingenuity had helped to hide. OK, that bit's good. Yeah. Suddenly, don't, don't lead with that. Cut out the entire first paragraph. Yeah. I like, yeah. we've, we've never actually critiqued live as yeah, we go. Yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. I'll throw you another bit. He began in deep waters... Ooh, okay. On a 2,000-mile yeah, voyage across the Pacific in a small yacht with one companion, and a very strange one at that. And he ended uh. in high altitudes, among the top echelons of American big business. He's a, there's a funny tense going on there, yeah. isn't there? He started... He and began then he in deep waters and he ended in high altitudes. It's yeah. not elegant, is it? Keith Stewart's happiest discovery, apart from what he set out to find... So they're giving you the end. Yeah, that's good. Was that he had more friends in the world than he knew about. Ah, oh, that's, that's now nice. wait, wait, wait. Neville Shute's new book is on a theme dear to his heart: the ordeal of an ordinary man plunged into extraordinary circumstances, and emerging with his personal values unshaken. Trustee from the Tool Room is a splendid story, ah, oh. whose sense of adventure and the power of friendship make it the happiest as well as the last of Neville <laughs> oh, wow. Shoots novels. Oh, that is a sting in the tail. I just want to say, as the, well, on the back of this book, uh, are quotes from On the Beach, the very first of which. Have you, do you know this? No, OK, they've, the first quote they've, they've put on here from, from uh, the Daily Telegraph is this. Neville Shoots' new novel is a quietly and deliberately terrible book. <laughs> 
<laughs> but by which uh, they mean it's yeah. about those, a terrible subject. Those, it's, those, uh, those you know. 60s marketing departments, yeah. how we love but them. So I, I agree. It's, it's, but here's the thing. What the blurb should say, nothing more except public... You like Neville Shute. Yeah. Here's yeah. a book by him. Oh, you're going to love it. But I'll just say, because it is a splendid story. If it, yeah. I, I, that absolutely sums it up. I think it is a splendid story. It is and, a splendid story. And it is about the power of friendship. And, yeah. And, you know, that's lovely. Let's, let's, let's leave it with that. And his, and I say, his kind of, his compulsive need to describe things in a, not in a, you know, in, yes, detail, but in a very, you know, the language, you never, you never at sea, what was Federman saying about the lack of literary, whatever, but there's no filigree in this book at yeah, all. Yeah. He's a very, yeah. I think he's, a, I think he's a really marvellous writer. Well, he's fascinating because he's very, very left-brained. Yeah. Right, very left-brained, but he, he has, he obviously has extreme compassion for human beings as well, and it's quite a rare combination. Yes. So he writes within the constraints of the left brain, that, that... but he cannot help but let compassion into it. Yeah, I mean, you could. There are so many things you could have. You, he could have done differently in the book. The, I love the Jack Donnelly character, mm. uh, and that thing of him continually being fascinated by God, smallest in the world, the little tiny oh, kind yeah, of petrol engine. Ranger. He just keeps. And he, it's just. It's, it's. It's very interesting reading the reviews from the time of this book. Um, they're mostly. You know, they tend to damn with faint praise. Yeah. Um, there's a, uh, there's a, <laughs> uh, John. There's a fantastic review which I don't have, unfortunately. But if 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 anyone goes online and you look up the the Telegraph's review of Trusty from the Tool Room by Neville Shute, right. isn't done in a roundup with other fiction published the same week, alongside the Unnameable by Samuel Beckett. No, God, which is one of the books we talked about <laughs> yeah. on the last episode. They were right? exactly contemporaneous. If you had the fiction round um, at yeah. that point, you could get Trusty from the Tool Room in the same week as Samuel Beckett and try wow. and find some <laughs> common ground between them. And he Kindness. does. He does. Yeah, yeah. He says, well, no, actually, John, he says, um, you know, Neville Shute, d d d Neville Shute does what Neville Shute always did, which um, is um, give you detail, um, yeah. uh, give you a belief in human beings. Yeah. And Samuel Beckett gives you a man who says he's going to go on and doesn't go on, but then he does go, go on. There is in that slightly, as I say, that watching Keith Stewart kind of shambling down Ealing High Street, there is a sort of like a Beckettian tramp mm. element to him. He just, it, it, all he's, in the end, all he's got is his, what did it say? His, his excellent values. His excellent values. Now, we should say about Neville Shute as well, that Neville, <laughs> Neville was rather of the right. Yes. He, he, he's, he's, he, one of his novels, I've got a copy here, uh, is called In the Wet, uh, and this was published in 1954. It was published after... Uh, shoot left the UK, emigrated for Australia because he was so appalled it, at the, the Clement Attlee government getting, getting in uh, again. It's yeah. not, it's he not said, if, I, he said I will, if I moved, if if Gatley gets in again, I'm moving to Australia. He oh, loved, he loved the, the old sort of Andrew Lloyd Webber yeah. kind of thing of if they get but in. He was very cross about taxation. Well, it's fascinating that that a large part of the plot of this book is about it's tax dodging. Yeah, well, it's, 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 I mean, about, it's, it's about not he, being allowed to take a lot of English money in, into foreign territory. <laughs> yeah. just think, and that's his sort of right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write a book about that. I've got. You always think, what's the inciting incident for a book? Yeah. Right. Whenever I read a book, you think, what was the the idea? Yeah. 
where they've done, oh, okay, okay, this is what, this is what I'm going to... Yeah. Yeah. But I'm almost certain yeah. it's like, okay. yeah, yeah, God, I wish, I wish I could have taken more money into, into Australia. How could, I, how could I have done that? And then everything, everything spins this, out. This... With, spoiler alert, but he gets away with it. So he lets... He keeps... uh, but then the shoot would say that it's Stupid a classic... Law. It's a classic personal integrity versus idiot, bureaucratic yeah, yeah, yeah. idiocy. Idiot. Na natural, yeah. ju natural justice. So in The Wet, this novel that was published in 1953, <laughs> shortly after he arrived in Australia, is... Um, I don't know if either of you have read this. No, I haven't. Well, it's about... It sounds like a follow-up to On the Beach. <laughs> it sounds like you got off the beach the and into the sea. Yeah. 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 He, he, um, it's a book about a man who, um, in the 19th century, is injured and... Uh, is given opium as a um, palliative, and during an opium dream, is transported forwards to to the 1980s, oh, wow. where he wow. discovers that um, Britain is, uh, after a long period of austerity, <laughs> imposed by a socialist government, government, is on its knees, wow. and so it's a kind of William Morris news from nowhere. But, in, but instead, of, but instead of going to the future and discovering it's a it's a sort of workers' collective, it's the opposite. He goes and discovers that the workers' collective has ruined people. People people don't like the Queen anymore in the, in the <laughs> okay. West. It's really. Um, but it's sort of this is what I mean, Richard. There's some unusual stuff he writes about. Right, absolutely. But he he was born in 1899. Yeah. So he was like he was his childhood was this extraordinary Edwardian kind of middle class childhood, and then you know you know you can see the war coming towards yeah. you, and beyond even the war, his dad was put in charge of the Irish Post Office in Dublin. And the young Neville Shute is a stretcher bearer. He watches the the the, the Irish the Easter Rising, watches people wow. shot soldiers being shot dead in front of him, and and it distinguishes himself as a stretcher bearer. Very very extraordinary breadth of experience it's for somebody from Ealing. How <laughs> authors, the biographies of authors who were writing uh, in the sort of early part of the last century, are very different to the biography of authors now. Because <laughs> <laughs> yes. you know, like no one's ever done anything. It's always oh, and then worked in marketing for Procter and Gamble for. Four years yeah, yeah. before their first novel was published. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Richard, I'm going to ask you yeah. to read, if you would be so good, the scene. We've talked a lot about um, lathes and workshops yes. and Ealing, but the thing about Neville Shute is um, in all of the books of his that I've read, when he wants to, uh, as it were, put his foot on the accelerator or, or, yeah. or take off, he can really do it. Yeah, he really and can. This uh... He's a great the, writer of action. The action sequence here. Amazing. So we're, where where are we at this point? We are... So are... this is the, the, the brother-in-law and the wife are travelling to Vancouver and they're travelling via various places, just been to Tahiti. And, and by the way, so this is an action sequence. This follows about, I'm going to say, like a 10-page digression about how one navigates in a small craft uh, across you various places. You get the places. full lesson. You right? get the full thing, but actually quite interesting. Amazing, yeah. uh, Absolutely. Uh, but then, it, yeah. Uh, about the middle of the morning, something in the water ahead drew John's attention. He gave the helm to Joe, Joe is the wife, and stood up against the companion, the wind tearing at his clothing, lashed by the spray. Visibility was between one and two miles. There was something different half a mile or so ahead of him. The backs of the sea looked different in some way. Then, over to the left a little, in a quick passing glimpse, he saw what looked like the tops of palm trees above the waves. He turned with a heavy heart and went back to his wife. There seems to be an island dead ahead, he shouted. I think we're driving down onto a reef. 
She nodded. She was now past caring. He took her hand. I'm sorry about this, Joe. She smiled at him. It doesn't matter. Can you take her a bit longer, he asked. I want to see if we can dodge it. She nodded, and he stood up again by the companion. It was clearer now, for they were closer. What he had seen were the backs of the great comas breaking on a coral reef. The line of different surf extended both on port and starboard hands as far as he could see. He searched desperately for a break in the surf, something to indicate a passage through the reef into the sheltered lagoon that might lie beyond. If there were any break, he would try and steer her off and run in through it, even though they might be overwhelmed in the process. He could see no break at all. It all just looked the same on either band as far as he could see. There was no escape for them now. Shearwater, that's the boat, was driving straight onto a coral reef in the Tutamos somewhere and would leave her bones upon the coral as many a tall ship had done before. He had not the remotest idea where they were. He came back to her and took the helm. In bad moments in the last 48 hours, he had imagined this situation and had thought it out. Better to take the coral straight, head on, than to be thrown onto their beam ends, to have the hull crushed like an eggshell by the fury of the waves. Better to take it head on, taking the shock on the lead keel and trying to keep stern onto the seas. Reefs were seldom uniform in height. If they had the luck to strike a fissure, a patch where in calm water the coral was a couple of feet or more below the surface, they might possibly be driven over it onto the lagoon and still float and live. He bent to explain this to his wife. I want you to go below, he shouted. When we strike, stay in the hull. She'll probably get full of water, but stay in the hull. Just keep your head above the water, but stay inside. She shouted, what are you going to do? I'm going to stay up here and steer her on. I'll join you down below as soon as she strikes. It's our best chance. I don't think she'll break up. If she breaks up, she'll stay on the reef, won't she? He knew what was in her mind. The keel will, and probably the frames. He paused and then leaned across and kissed her. Now go below. I'm sorry I've got you into this. She kissed him in return. It's not your fault. She stood up, waited her chance, opened the hatch and slipped down below, leaving it open for him to follow her. She sat down on one of the settees, the first aid box in her hands. There were now only a few minutes to go. She thought she ought to say a prayer, but it seemed mean to have neglected God and her religion for so long and then to pray when death was imminent. The words would not come. She could only think of Janice. Janice, whose future happiness lay buried in the concrete beneath her feet. The concrete would survive upon the coral reef, but no one would ever know of it but Keith. Keith, who had never made much of his life. Keith, who had never been anywhere or done anything. Keith, to whose keeping she had trusted Janice. From the cockpit, John Dermott shouted above the screaming of the wind, Next one, Joe! In those last moments, the power of prayer came to her, and she muttered in the accents of her childhood, Lord, give Keith a bit of good sense. Then they struck. Brilliant. Master storyteller. That's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. She's not mucking Master. about. I think one of the things about that, Richard, actually, that occurred to me while you were reading, it was wonderful, by the way, the, the thing about Neville Shute's novels, and something that has in common with your novels, is people die. Mm, yeah. yeah. There are stakes. Yeah. yeah right. Sure. So we've talked about it being quite whimsical, but actually... If you look at a town like Alice, that's a yeah. that's a novel of wow. of the barbarity of man to man, woman to man, man to child. Trusty from the tool room, it kills them off there in a kind of methodical 
way. Well, right? he's, yeah, I, I, and I, on the beach, everybody dies. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. But but the thing, and honestly, the thing about it is, and I think this a, a, a lot when I'm writing. He talks about it, but he doesn't bang on about it. No. You know, he doesn't mm. kind of. You know, it's he he sort of writes about it, and yeah. then he'll write about the 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 lathe, and he'll write about them in in the same measured tone because that's how life is. And that's one yeah. of the great the great things about a town like Alice, I think, because the the you know the suffering of the women, which is yeah. you know half of them die. It's, it's... rereading a town like Alice. Yes. The child dies when it's bitten by a snake, and I remember <clears throat> reading that, thinking, "Oh, it'll be—they'll suck the venom out. <laughs> yeah, they don't. Didn't work. Yeah. Or rather, if they do, it doesn't work. Yeah. You know. So, as you yeah. say, Richard, that the idea that life can end, yeah, suddenly, like a, an exploding airship, say, which, yeah. you know, there is that sense that having lived through wars or disasters and, and or conflict yeah. losing a brother very early on yeah I, the I story just, go, the story goes on i yeah. just feel yeah. a, a couple of things about the the, the the tory thing definitely but he is very it's the old school small small you know it's the kind of it's the old-fashioned kind of one nation yeah. tory thing yeah. that, he likes an entrepreneur and he, like, yeah, he exactly. likes a, you know and he likes a bit of he likes a bit of swashbuckle he likes a bit of risk taking mm. you know he's not but he, I think he, I think he is, um, and also, you know, you think about this book. He, he, he gets some, some, uh, he gets some jip about his his women characters. But actually, in all the books, in this book, Katie, the wife, is actually the one who, who does all the accounts yeah. and does the work. And even in the kind of representation of, you know, the, the, there are two important Jewish characters in the book. Absolutely, uh, uh, Jack Donnelly is half yeah. Polynesian and gets the girl. Yeah, I mean, I've I've just been reading a lot of Golden Age crime for a thing. And it's so I was slightly worried reading this book, uh, but actually for the for the for the day it's not. It's extraordinary. Terrible. Yeah. Well, can I can I read a Betjeman quote about Neville Shute, yeah, which, yeah. which goes to this sort of Toryness yeah. of it? I always say you try and judge people by their um, by their motives, not by their opinions, and yeah. so that's you know. very good. Uh, so Betjeman uh, concluded, uh, Neville Shute does not sound priggish or false because he is obviously sincere. He is not a self-styled plain man with loud, dull opinions. <laughs> He is humbler than that. He writes because he wants to give us hope. He does not write literature, but I think he succeeds in his mission. That's that's right. That's, I'll, you'll, we'll take that as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. yeah. Could we, let's, let's hear another clip uh, quickly from, um, this is uh, his daughter Heather again talking about her father, and uh, you'll also hear Adam Hart Davis. Uh, this is from an episode of Great Lives on Radio 4 about 20 years ago. In the evening after dinner, he would go into his little workshop and he would build little engines and things like that. And, of course, all that came out in um, Trusty from the Tool Room, which was the last book that he wrote. That, that's fascinating because that's my favourite of all his books. I, I read that a couple of weeks ago and it's absolutely wonderful. And I noticed that Keith Stewart, his hero, lived in Ealing and obviously it was very autobiographical. And he describes him as a little man, rather quiet, insignificant, with a greasy raincoat. It, it's, it's the most charming book of all, I think. And I hadn't realised that your father was a, a miniature mechanic. He needed all these different things as a sort of a counterpoint to one another. He never, except perhaps at the very end, did he consider himself a writer. He, he considered himself an engineer most of his life. Now, we should also say um, one of the things that uh, this quiet, unassuming, quirky, individual engineering man was, by some margin, one of the best-selling writers of the 20th century. Yeah. And 
um, after he died, Trustee from the Tool Room was published two, three months after he died. And at the time, um, it was a record, world record for a first printing in the UK. Wow. They printed 200,000 copies immediately of Amazing. the first edition. As we said earlier, the Sunday Times bestseller list was in the New York Times for five months. So the question I want to circle back to before we wrap up, why hasn't Neville Shute, I think it is fair to say, why isn't he read now? Yeah, I think it's deeply unfashionable, certainly in, in, in literary terms, because what he's doing, as you say, it's splendid and it's charming. But as you, you know, said, with Be as Betjeman just said, it's not literature, but what it is has its own merits, right? Exactly, and it feels to me like he's right. You know, listen, that's what this podcast is all about. It's saying he's gone out of fashion, but he shouldn't have done, because there is incredible merit in this book. I can imagine reading this book and coming at it from a different angle to I did and not enjoying it, and kind of going, I don't, nothing happens here. But I think if you come at it head on, I think it's uh, an extraordinary work. And I think if you look at everything that's happened since Neville Shute died in terms of, you know, the literature that sort of was big, the authors who were big, of course, of course he disappeared because what does he have to offer, you know, the, the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the noughties? But we're in the 2020s now and the world we're living in feels to me like this book has an awful lot to offer us when it talks about just doing things the right way and it talks about getting rewarded and it talks about the value of friendship and the value of people supporting each other. It feels to me like that's not a story we've needed uh, for the last 30 or 40 years, but probably a story we need now. I'll also, I think that's very wise, I'll also add something else which has been one of the great pleasures of making this podcast is every so often we, we chance upon an author or a novel uh, where I think... And I do think Neville Shute is one of these, John. I'm absolutely enraptured by how weird these books yes. are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I so think weird. these were some of the best-selling novels yeah. of the 20th century. Each one is so different from the previous one. Each one is so peculiar in its storytelling yeah. method and its subject matter. He is his own genre, right? So when yeah. I was thinking, who, who... So many men thinking of, you know, my grandfather, my uncles, men who did things in sheds, who were interested in machines. Yeah. These books were kind of written, I mean, whether they were written for them, they're certainly read by them in their millions. I wonder where did that where did that market go? Where did those men, Le Carre maybe, yeah. Len Dayton, but it, they're much more, in a way, they're much more generic. I mean, yeah. well, I think Le Carre is a great writer, but, you know, it's like there's no one Really, after Neville Shute, who writes Neville You know where they've gone, all gone, yeah. don't you? They've all got podcasts now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're all making YouTube videos. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, um, you'll be able to see this on YouTube. We've filmed it and everything, so you can see me and John with, surrounded by our phones and wearing, our notes. Wearing and our a books. tie. Wearing a tie. Look, nice. Anyway, all, all good tar. things come to an end. We're towing this little bicentennial bark into a uh, harbour. Huge thank you to Richard. Thank you. For enrolling us in the International Alliance of Shootists and to Nicky Birch for navigating our little catch across the wide Shootian Ocean. 
If you want show notes with clips, links and suggestions for further reading for this show and the 199 that we've already recorded, please visit our website at batlisted.fm where you'll also find a link to our regular newsletter which will include things that uh, pigs that uh, John Mitchinson has met, uh, places in Purley that I recommend, and uh, books perhaps that Richard Osman has been reading. And if you want to buy any of the books, including Richard's and Neville's, uh, please visit our bookshop at bookshop.org and choose Backlisted as your bookshop. We're still keen to hear from you on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Blue Sky. And furthermore... We will be recording a live episode of Backlisted at the Woodstock Poetry Festival in Oxford on Saturday, December the 2nd. It's the Saturday. It's 8pm in the evening, St Mary's Church, Woodstock. And the subject of the podcast is... is Basil Bunting's extraordinary poem, Brig Flats. No engineering in it, but uh, <laughs> it's like it's like the wasteland, only up north. We I'm have the great Neil I... Astley from Bullabax as guest. And the other guest is McGillivray, uh, a.k.a. Kirsten Norrie, who's a, who's a Blood Axe poet. Go on to the Wood, woodstockpoetryfestival.org website and you can buy tickets. And we look forward to seeing you there. I, I like to think Neville Shute and Basil Bunsing did meet at one point. What a thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't imagine Neville taking out one, a little, one of his little engines and Basil Bunting becoming quite fascinated by it. Not the Neville shoot. <laughs> right, if you want to hear Backlisted early and ad-free, you can subscribe to our Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. Your subscription brings other benefits. If you subscribe at the lot listener level, or for rather less than the price of a monthly subscription to Miniature Mechanic, you'll get not one but two exclusive extra podcasts every month. We call it Locklisted because it began in the Wenlock Tavern just before lockdown and it features the three of us talking and recommending the books, films and music we've enjoyed the previous fortnight. For those of you who enjoyed our What Have You Been Reading slot, that's where you'll now find it. Plus... Lot listeners get their names read out, accompanied by lashings of thanks and gratitude. And because it's episode 200, our guest has agreed <laughs> on the spot to read out these names. Take it away, Richard. I have. I, I might get some of these pronunciations wrong. Don't worry. Uh, Diane Sabina. Thank you. Uh, Barbara Meany. Thank you. Michael. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> that I can do. Camilla Wilde. Thank you. John Camilla. Ward. Yeah. Thank you. Ian Farr. Great. Liz. Oh, Liz. Liz. Thank you, Liz. Ada Arduini. Thank yep. you. Christine L. Boatman. Thank you. Oh, oh, very good name, name for this. Yes. Best very name good. so far for a, yeah. for a novelist. Uh, and Janine Nickel. Wonderful. Great. Thanks so much, everybody. Richard, before we go, is there anything we haven't covered <laughs> about Neville Shute or a trustee from the tool room or, or, or anything that you would like to add? No other than I stumbled across this novel and it just made two weeks absolutely fly by and that's the point of this podcast it's why i'm here it's lovely to be here but anyone who reads it i hope that you love it thank you so much well thanks for joining us today and thanks everyone particularly if this is the 200th episode you've, you've heard, <laughs> or the first either way You're, thank you so much everyone welcome and uh should we do it again in a fortnight uh why don't we let's All do right, it again great. in a fortnight thanks very much thanks for bye listening. everyone bye, thank everybody. you bye, bye. Thank you.